0: Well, folks, again, welcome and uh, good morning. Uh, we are we're continuing in Genesis, and so uh, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 10. That's Genesis chapter 10. And if you would, just hold that in front of you. Um, hold Genesis 10 um, on your lap uh, just for a moment or two, because um, I'd like to review a couple of themes that we've already covered, and part of the reason why we're, we're reviewing the themes um, so part of our part of our task um, is again trying to understand Scripture as as Scripture would have us understand it. And um, one of the delightful things uh, that a pastor gets to do is is really to try to be an encouragement um, in reading the Scriptures more richly. Uh, but my goal here is is that uh, not not to read it creatively, um, but to read it richly. And, and so allow the text to emphasize what the text itself would have us emphasize. And so to do that, we we think about the divisions that we find in the scriptures themselves, not the divisions that that we see necessarily given to us in our English translations. So keeping that in front of us, we are coming to the end, well, we actually concluded a subdivision, and we're coming to the end of a broader division, so the broader division begins at 6:9 and goes all the way to the end of our text, which is actually the ninth verse of chapter 11. Now, that is again a, a section of text that's roped off, if you like. It's it's enclosed by the words "toledot" in the Greek and the Hebrew, rather, which means or is translated often in our authorized version as "these are the generations of." Okay, so. The division that we're working with is that text that lies between those markers. These are the generations of, uh, followed by at the end in eleven nine again that that repetition. But I remind you too, as we are looking at this broader division, we are already coming. We've already come to the conclusion of that subdivision that lies within this text. So the broader division is six nine to eleven nine. The more narrow division, or the subdivision, if you like, is from six nine to 9.29. And you remember, as we looked at that section, the flood narrative that begins in 6.9 comes to a partial conclusion at the end of chapter 9. Now, it's partial. Why is it partial? Well, you'll notice that there are themes that really come to a resolution. You remember in 6, of course, we have the idea of judgment. In chapter 9, what takes place? God sees the sacrifice, and he is well-pleased. That's the conclusion of the judgment theme. Then you have the idea of the church's preservation. Again, something promised in chapter 6, something that we see fulfilled in chapter 9, when Noah and his family leave the ark. And again, you have also, in chapter 6, a real decline in the church of God. The worship of God has been corrupted as people have mingled themselves with the reprobate line, the line of Cain. But when you come to the end of chapter 9, you see the church once again engaged in worship. And the idea there is she has really been purged, cleansed from that kind of intermingling, even though, of course, the church at this time has been narrowed just to the single family. So there is a partial conclusion to the themes that we saw in chapter six, but it is only partial. In chapter nine, sorry, chapter 11, we'll see really the conclusion of all that we saw in chapter six. But I also would like to remind you, before we look at chapter 10, that when we leave chapter 9, there are a couple of themes that the Spirit of God has already laid in front of us, and we really should keep in front of us as we read. First of all, we leave in chapter 9 the covenant that was promised. You remember, God had promised in chapter 6 the covenant would be made. But in chapter 9, we find that covenant actually made, actually ratified, And we find something about his character. Just reading here from verse 16. That character is really embodied in the token of this covenant. The bow says the Lord shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon him, that I may remember the everlasting covenant. I asked you before, when we think of the rainbow, who is doing the remembering? According to chapter 9, it's the Lord. Now, why is that significant? Why is it significant that the token is for the Lord's remembrance? Well, as we've already seen in chapter 9, we've already watched the church leave the ark and fall into defection. She's just been, re- she's really been redeemed from judgment. And as soon as they leave the ark, you find that the selfsame kind of defections that existed before the flood will manifest after. So why is there not a continual flood? Why is it not the case, as it was in Genesis 6, that the Lord comes down and just generation after generation removes mankind, saving perhaps a remnant as he did in Noah's case? Well, part of the answer to that question uh, we'll get to when we look at chapters 10 and the beginning of chapter 11 But part of that's given to us already. The covenant that God has made, that he would preserve alive mankind, that he would not flood the world as he had, and we should keep this in mind as well, that he will indeed preserve mankind to the coming of Christ. It all depends upon the Lord's free grace. It's the Lord who remembers his covenant. The reason why the world is not in a flood again is because the Lord is gracious. Not because man doesn't deserve it. Now, that being really basic themes that will help us understand this text, I want to look at chapter 10 in its entirety, and also the first nine verses of chapter 11. And and these two uh, passages are really one passage. The the first that we'll take up, what we have all here is the 10th chapter, is really just the genealogical table. So in verses 1 to 5, you have Japheth's family, Verses 6 to 20, you have Ham with that subdivision of Canaan's line. That would be Ham's son. And verses 21 to 32, you have Shem's family. Verses 1 to 9, you have the narrative. Of course, the narrative being that of the Tower of Babel. And there are three divisions even within that text. The first four verses give us some account of the sin that has taken place. Verses 5 to 7 highlight the crisis that Babel really is. And then verses eight to nine really comes to a resolution of judgment. So that's really the lay of the land for this morning. And and I would like to read the text um, as we have before. Um, so I, I will I'll be reading the text. Uh, and as we read, just make comments uh, briefly through this. Uh, the genealogical table. My my goal for this um, I would say is uh, is just to set before you these these writings as history. Um, and And, of course, if the scriptures are providing for us history that's foundational for the present existence of mankind, uh, we should expect that there would be parallels between what we find in Genesis 10 and what we find even among pagan writers, and that's, in fact, what we do have. Uh, We can actually find, um, in many of the cases in Genesis 10, uh, through the pagan writers, where these folks ended up, what families they constitute, and, and even what nations um, what nations they would constitute even in our own day. So that's how we're going to approach the text. So go ahead, if you, if you haven't already, turn with me to Genesis 10 and starting there at verse 1, and we'll commence our reading of the text there. Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And unto them were sons born after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer. I'll stop right there. So, Gomer was likely, uh, from Herodotus, likely uh, one of the leading members of the Cimmerian tribe in Greece. What's striking about that is the Cimmerians in Greece would have had descendants who ended up in the British Isles. Um, So, and we actually even find that uh, C Y M R Y, Cimri right? Um, that sounds very similar to Welsh, doesn't it? And for good reason. Um, there's very much historical basis for us to say that Gomer, at least his descendants, would have ended up really populating this part of the world. Um, and so Gomer, uh, likely, um, we probably would call him dad at one, at one stage in our own timeline. But so Gomer is son of Japheth, is and Magog, uh, he would have been East Armenia or Southern Russia. His descendants would have occupied those areas. And Medii, Iran slash Media Persia, would have been his descendants' homes. And Javan. Javan would have occupied most of mainland Greece. And Tibul and Meshach, that would be west-central Turkey. And Tiras, and we're not quite sure where his family would end up. And the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, this would be the descendant of Gomer that would have occupied most of Germania, and his descendants likely would have then came over to Brittany. And Ridpath, that would be East Turkey, and Togoma, that would be West Armenia. And the sons of Javan, Elisha, that's Sicily, and Tarshish, that's Spain. Kittim, Cyprus, and Doranim, that would be Southern Greece. By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands, every one after his tongue, after their families in their nations. And I would just remark there, obviously in Genesis 10, we are dealing with history that has not quite taken place yet. Uh, What we're given here in Genesis 10 are the division of the nations and the scattering of the nations that would take place after Babel. But we're given that information, of course, before we're given the Babel narrative in chapter 11. Verses 6 to 14, we have the sons of Ham. And the sons of Ham, Cush, that is certainly Ethiopia today, and Misrim, that would be Egypt. Um, The word in Hebrew for Egypt is Mitzrayim. And Fut, that's northwest Africa, and Canaan, and of course that would be Palestine. And the sons of Kush, Seba and Havila, and Sabda, and Raama, and Sabteka, and the sons of Raama, Sheba, and Didan. And Kush begat Nimrod. Now, Nimrod literally means we will revolt. It's literally what his name means We will revolt. And he began to be a mighty, hunter, mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, How do we make sense of this? What do we make of him being a hunter? And then what do we make of this idea that he was a hunter before the Lord? The scriptures are helpful at this juncture, I think, to keep in mind. I want you to notice how Zion talks about her persecutors. Our persecutors are swifter than the eagles of heaven. They pursued us upon the mountains. They laid wait for us in the wilderness. And I could actually go to a whole host of texts where the persecutors of the church are described as hunters. These ones who are either fowlers or or genuine hunters going through the mountains, stalking their prey. When we look at this text, what we'll see as Nimrod becomes a mighty one in the earth he becomes the man who builds Babel. In fact, that's exactly what you have in the text. Wherefore it is said, Even as Nimrod the mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Who was king in Genesis 11? Nimrod. This was his creation. And not only Babel, but Iraq and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Out of that land went forth Asher and builded Nineveh and the city of Rehoboth and Kela. And Rezin, between Nineveh and Keilah, the same as a great city. The word great, there should be kept in mind that same kind of greatness that Nimrod himself had. That is a provoking man. That is one who stood before the Lord, stood out, as it were, before the Lord because of his rebellion. And Mitzrayim begat Lodim and Ananim, and Lachluhim, and Naftuhim, and Parashim, and Kausluhim, out of whom came Philistim, and Kaph Torim. In verses 15 to 20, you have then the subdivision. And the subdivision is one of Ham's sons. That's the sons of Canaan. And Canaan begat Sidon, his firstborn, and Haith, uh, Hath is really the root from which we get the word Hittite. Okay, so this is the beginning of the Hittite realm. And the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Gargashite, and the Hivite, and the Arkite, and the Sinite, and the Arvidite, and the Zamorite, and the Hamathite. And afterward were the families of the Canaanites spread abroad. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, as thou goest to Ger unto Gaza, as thou goest unto Sodom, and Gomorrah, and Admah, and Zebuim even unto Elisha. These are the sons of Ham, after their families, after their tongues, in their countries, and in their nations. And then come down with me, if you would, to verses 21 and following. We come here to the genealogy of Shem. And of Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber. This is, the, this is the name from which we get the word Hebrew. Eber is the root for Hebrew. Um, and he was, Shem of course was the brother of Japheth, he was the elder brother of Japheth. Uh, this is really an acknowledgment of primacy. We would have almost expected Shem to be at the beginning of this table, uh, but we'll see when we come to chapter 11 why, why we conclude rather than begin with him. Even unto him, that is to Shem, were children born. And the children of Shem, Elam, those would be those who would occupy the Caspian Sea or areas around it, And Asher, that would be, of course, the realm of Assyria. And Arphaxad, north Assyria. And Lud and Aram, Syria as well. And the children of Aram, Uz, that would be, of course, the land from which Job would come. Uh, But it would also really constitute the majority of what would become Babylon. And Hul, that's north Syria. And Gaither and Mesh, those are all Arabians. And our fact said, Begat Selah, and Selah begat Eber. And unto Eber were born two sons. The name name of one was Peleg. For in his days was the earth divided. Um, What division do we have in mind there? Uh, There really are two. Of course, there's the division that we find in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel. But you'll also notice that Peleg in chapter 11 really forms for us the change in longevity. People simply do not live as long as they did before Peleg. There is a division even in longevity that we could see there. And his brother's name was Joktan. And Jokhtan begat Almadad and Selehif and Hazmar, I'm sorry, Hazarmaveth and Jera and Hadaram and Uzel and Dikla and Obel and Abimiel and Sheba. All of these would be folks who would occupy really what would now be considered East Africa. And Ofer and Havela and Jobeb, all of these were the sons of Jakhtan. And again, Jakhtan would occupy really most of what we call Arabia, Saudi Arabia today. And their dwelling was from Misha, as thou goest unto Sephar. Sephar being really the westernmost parts of India, a Mount of the East. These are the sons of Shem after their families after their tongues, in their lands, after their nations. These are the families of the sons of Noah, after their generations, in their nations. And by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. I want to come then to the first nine verses of Genesis 11. And, and really, I'm not going to make any comments on the text. I just want to read it to you, and then we'll reflect on it at the conclusion. So that's Genesis 11, starting here at verse 1. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go, let us make brick, and burn them throughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build a city and a tower. Whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. I want you to notice, just before we continue, this is the rationale for Babel. Uh, this is how we're supposed to read this text. This is why Babel is built. I also want you to notice, this is not, there's no real strange theology behind this. They're, they're not going, they don't think they can reach the throne of God. The aim for those who are in Babel... Is to create something that is so high and so great that they cannot be divided. They would always have some concrete thing to look to that could unify them all. And so coming here to verses five and following. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. the Lord scatter them abroad on the face of all the earth? As we hold this last section of this broader division, that division that begins in 6-9 and goes all the way to that last verse that we read, what are some of the emphases that we see there? The inspired historian is giving to us a narrative, but he's giving us a narrative that has very particular foci. He's looking at particular things. I want you to notice in chapter 9, we already get a hint at his focus. In chapter 9, do you remember how Noah refers to Shem? Or rather, how he refers to God. Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. He doesn't say that of Japheth. He doesn't say that of Ham. Somehow, already we are to see that God will be particularly the God of Shemites. But on top of that, So, well, first of all, that explains, doesn't it, why our last point in the genealogical table is Shem. Shem is going to really be the bridge between this narrative that explains to us the world as we know it today and all of the covenantal history that's going to follow. But I also want you to notice, too, it's striking, isn't it, that in Ham you have that subdivision for the Canaanites. Now, you don't have that for any of the other families, not to the extent that we have for Canaan. Why might that be? Well, of course, as we are thinking through this, the Spirit of God is leading us to think about those who will be the chief oppressors and the chief enemies of God's people in the rest of our covenant history throughout Scripture. This Canaanite focus is going to help us when we read the rest of the Pentateuch. But those being the emphases, there's other, there are a few other things we can't miss either. I want you to notice, it might even be helpful if you turn back to chapter 6 just for a moment. I want you to notice that there are certain parallels that really mark the beginning and the end of this broader division. I want you to notice in, verse, in chapter 6 and verses 1 and 2, you have, of course the defection of the church, that intermingling of the church with the world, and you even have a rationale given there, don't you? They saw that the sons of men, were the daughters of men, were beautiful. You have defection and you have the rationale for their sin given to us. If you look at chapter 11 and the first four verses, you have exactly the same thing. You have the sin of mankind listed, and then the rationale that they give for their disobedience. But then if you come down to verses 5 and following in chapter 6, you have this language where God seems to come down from heaven, and he seems to see something. Of course, our God is omnipotent. He is infinite in in his existence. But yet the scriptures describe him as one coming down and one seeing. And what's striking is that's exactly how, in chapter 11, God is described when he looks at Babel. And then thirdly, you have in chapter 6 and in chapter 11, of course, the judgment of God already described for us before it comes to pass, and even the rationale for it. In chapter 6, it's because the the thoughts and the, the imagination of the man's heart are only evil continually, and in chapter 11, you have, the, you have the rationale given that this is necessary because man would only continue in his disobedience if he was not scattered. What do we make of that? As this is one of the reasons why I'm very passionate about reading the scriptures according to visions that we find in the texts themselves, because I, I suppose we don't think about the connection between the flood and the, ba- and the Tower of Babel as more than just enjoying some closeness on the timeline to one another. The inspired historian sees a lot of parallels between these two events and would have us think about these two events as integrally related. And why might that be? Well, briefly, it's important for us to remember that this is a text that is giving to us covenantal history. This is not simply satisfying some historical curiosity that we might have about mankind's earliest days. This is giving us history with a particular focus on God's covenantal dealings with men. And because of that, we have Noah, who's in covenant with God. We have then, of course, you have the division between Ham and Shem Japheth. The narrowing of that covenant. God will be the God of Shem, particularly. But then you have that crisis in chapter 11, and you wonder... Mankind has rebelled again. The church, you remember, the church at this time is really drawn from this family, this one single family. So it's the church you're supposed to be seeing here as engaged in defection. What will happen? This is the real crisis. This is the crisis of chapter 11. In fact, as we read chapter 11, verse 5, and we read that God is seeing what he's seeing, and we're thinking back to chapter 6, here's what we should be thinking. What is going to happen? This stands very much in parallel to what the world looked like and how God was acting prior to the flood. Should we expect another kind of judgment just like that? Destruction on all all fronts. What you find in chapter 11 is scattering rather than flood. Scattering rather than total destruction or near total destruction. That shows us, doesn't it, the connection between these two events? Why is it that mankind isn't destroyed in Genesis eleven like he was in Genesis six? The covenant that we have in Genesis nine is part of the answer, and we should feel that, beloved. This should be a text that strikes us. Very briefly, um, folks. I, you, you know, I love history, um, and so I couldn't, I couldn't forbear, but. I also need to tell you too that this is a huge text um, when we're thinking about human history and uh, perhaps it might surprise you to find that this table that we're given in Genesis 10 actually explains for us the rise of idolatry in a way that um, uh, it's really staggering, actually. Let me give you a few examples and and I'll I'll close with these. So, This is a pagan writer. He says, at that time, so he's actually referring to the time immediately after the flood. At that time, Jupiter spent the greatest part of his life on Mount Olympus. And they, that is the people, used to resort to him thither for the administration of justice, if any matters were disputed. Moreover, if anyone had found out any new invention which might be useful for human life, he used to come out thither and display it to Jupiter. Here's what's striking about this. The ancient writers referred to Jupiter as a king, as one member of one of these families. That's all he was. And Mount Olympus, historically, was simply the place where he would sit, where his throne was located, and people would resort to him for judgment. Strikingly, another pagan historian says this, King Jupiter gave to Neptune the government of the seas, that he might reign in all the islands and places bordering the sea And keep them safe from pirates. So, according to the pagan writers, where did Jupiter and Neptune and all those guys come from? Well, they were just kings. They were just kings. Kings that followed right from the genealogical tables that we have from us here in Genesis 10. But kings over the course of time that began to be deified. And that's what's striking, isn't it? These were considered great men in the earth. And then all of a sudden, over a period of time, their legend becomes really something that becomes more like a religion. They begin to worship the place where Jupiter uh, once was just a king, sitting there and judging the people. And I remind you, uh, guys, this is I'm reading to you from pagan history, uh, people who would have been immersed themselves in this, in this thing. So it's important for us to notice that as the scriptures are giving to us human history here, It is showing us so much. And it's also giving us a way of thinking about the world as we know it today. The world that's described for us here is the world that you and I live in. The Implications for that is simple, isn't it? When you and I hear a different language, when we think about the division of the nations cast over all the world, and we think about the divisions that are there, if we're thinking about this text, we'll remember why. The church was in a state of defection. And now, through the millennia, we live with the effects of that defection. But, Babel is reversed. And I'll close with this Babel is reversed in Acts 2. When the gospel is preached, and there, all of a sudden, you find all of those who are speaking different tongues all of those from different nations heard the proclamation of Jesus Christ in their own language. That shows us how Jesus Christ will undo the curse, even the curse that we have given to us, in a sense, in Genesis 11. It will be the gospel that undoes Babel. And what we'll find is, as we come to Genesis 12, that's exactly what the inspired historian has in mind. Why is it that we have Abraham in view? That the nations will be blessed through him. Scattered, yes, but through the Lord Jesus Christ, one day they would all be reclaimed again. And that is our blessed hope. And may the Lord fix us upon that hope, even this morning. Let's, let's close by going to the throne of grace together. Let's pray. Our blessed and eternal God, we come before you with thanksgiving. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word that is a sure place to stand. Lord, we thank you that it is perfect in all that it tells us and that we can entrust ourselves to it absolutely. And so, Father, as it helps us to think about the world around us, we pray that it would indeed inform our minds and our hearts. Father, we would be mindful. Uh, That what we see around us is indeed marked by sin. Uh, But Father, we also pray that you would fix upon us as well, fix us upon that promise that Jesus Christ, as King of the nations, will one day subdue all to himself once more. Lord, fix that hope in us, we pray, and fix us, Lord, upon that Christ. For we ask all in his blessed name. Amen.